aren't there more Native American restaurants? We explore this question next with the sous chef. Welcome to 5 O'Clock. I'm Theral Timpson. Chef Sean Sherman, a member of the Ogallala Lakota tribe and known as the sous chef, is working passionately to revitalize Native American cuisine. At his James Beard award-winning restaurant, Owamni, in Minneapolis, the cuisine is made from indigenous ingredients, that is, native to America before 1492. The dishes are prepared in ways that reflect local Native American cultures. What does this all mean? Sean is here to tell us. Sean grew up on the Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota. He's the author of the book, The Sous Chef, which won the James Beard Award for Best American Cookbook. He also runs a nonprofit, Natives, to develop Native American cuisine. Welcome to 5 O'Clock, Sean Sherman. Thanks for having me. How tanyan yahi. Yeah. <laughs> Did I say that okay? Yeah, exactly. Good morning. <laughs> so the restaurant of Wamni is receiving high praise and awards, and I'm, I'm looking forward to going there myself. I haven't been there yet, um, but I'm a big foodie. I love restaurants, and I do cook a lot myself. And uh, when we began to work on this podcast last year, we decided, yes, we're going to talk philosophy, history, music, and art, but we have to talk food, too, because food is just so much a part of our lives. Let's start with this question I opened with. It's a question you ask in your presentations. Why aren't there more Native American restaurants? It's a big question, you know, and that's something that I had personally set out to figure out myself also because I grew up in the restaurant situation, working, starting working in restaurants at the age of 13 and all through high school and college and then eventually moving to Minneapolis, Minnesota from, from South Dakota and uh, working my way up into a chef career. And um, just having a really good chef career, working with all sorts of styles of food, Spanish, French, Italian, uh, Japanese, uh, North African. Um, just, you know, was very curious uh, as a chef. And, uh, you know, it was a few years into that chef career that I just realized the complete absence of native indigenous foods out there, um, especially just from my own heritage growing up on Pine Ridge Reservation and being enrolled with the Oglala Lakota Sioux Tribe. And just really wanted to find out, you know, why was there so much invisibility around indigenous foods? Um, you know, because no matter where we are in North America, we're standing on indigenous land spaces. And there's still so much diverse indigenous communities everywhere. So why is the food or why has the food just basically been wiped away? You know, so that became the question. So first, I just wanted to learn what my ancestors were eating, how they were harvesting, what they were trading with other communities, if they were growing things, um, what they were hunting, and just knowing what wasn't here for them. You know, So part of our philosophy with the foods that we do is just removing colonial ingredients of things that got introduced. So no dairy products, no wheat flour, no cane sugar, no beef, pork, chicken, and just really focused on all of that. And as I studied more and really got to understand kind of how indigenous food systems worked and a lot of those pieces and how my ancestors were, you know, just dealing with indigenous food systems, um, then the question came to why did we lose this knowledge so quickly? So that became a study of basically just American colonialism, um, just for the land space that we're on in global colonialism, if you want to look at it on a larger scale, but just understanding the effects of colonialism to us against uh, as 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 indigenous peoples and what happened um, basically, especially throughout the 1800s and, um, uh, and obviously ongoing throughout the 1900s and even still today at some points. So this, uh, th this question just becomes really 
uh, a story, you know, it becomes like just understanding um, the amount of not only really intense violence and genocide that happens against indigenous peoples across North America, but um, just the oppression, the assimilation, um, and just the segregation that still continues today um, around indigenous communities. And just because of an immense amount of loss of land access and wealth, you know, it's not easy to come from a reservation system to have any kind of uh, wealth or training or development, especially coming from a place where we didn't even have restaurants growing up, you know, we had yeah, to go off yeah. site off the reservation to find restaurants. And uh, so it's just not something that comes easy. And uh, that's part of the work that we try to do is showcase what's possible and also creating systems with our nonprofit to help others overcome these hurdles. It's yeah, it's a big question. And you covered a lot in that answer. Um, so I, I, let's talk about Awamni. And sure. I have your menu here. So you, you talked about um, pre-colonial or, or decolonialized ingredients. Um, so I'm just looking at your menu. So so for starters, um, you know, it says plant and then um, – so is, this is the Lakota name, right? Watoto? Wat How yeah, do you we're say that? Using, we're, we're using the Dakota names because we're on Dakota land space oh, here in Minnesota. Okay. And it's just slight dialect changes, you know, um, but there's a slight, slight differences between Dakota and Lakota. Um, but we're, we're all from the same family group, basically. Okay, gotcha. And I've got ancestry coming from both sides, really, from Dakota and Lakota. Right, okay, Lakota would be Pine Ridge, where you were yeah. born, but the restaurant's yeah, in well, Minneapolis. Uh, yep, right on the Mississippi River, right downtown. And the name of the restaurant is actually named for the space that we're sitting on, so... Okay, got it. That's the Awamni. Okay, yeah. so then, so then the word for plant is watoto. Yeah, and we're just trying to um, showcase. We try to utilize a lot of indigenous language into the menu here and there, and even outside the restaurant, we have a whole bunch of indigenous plants that grow um, around the restaurant that we landscaped, and we have little signs that will show the Dakota name of that plant because that's the true name of that plant in that soil. Really um, and nice. then it's little descriptors, you know, so we just have a lot of fun. We change the menu quite a bit. Menu changes a minimum of four times a year. And, you know, we really just kind of stay with the seasons and really been kind of changing with, with, with a lot of the moon cycles and the solstices and equinoxes and stuff like that, too. Beautiful. Uh, yeah. We do a lot of specials every day. And again, our philosophy was just taking away colonial ingredients. And so, you know, we're gluten-free, dairy-free, sugar-free, soy-free, pork-free. So the food happens to be really healthy, um, but also really interesting and really tasty. And we prioritize by purchasing from indigenous producers first. So locally and then nationally. So we have a lot of amazing indigenous food um, products that we utilize on our menu. Uh, we just try to feature a lot of things. And it's easy for us to be plant-based on a lot of things because there's no cheese or dairy products inside the foods and if it doesn't have meat in it then it's just completely plant-based right and so what i'm looking at here what's catching my eye i'm i'm looking at a um, wild mushroom chowder yeah, sure. um, that looks fantastic and then um true wild rice so that means it is like from some local um harvested um local right it says hand harvested yeah. i think i'd probably order that because i've heard a lot yeah. about wild rice it's so unique, and it's not like the black rice you find in the grocery stores, you know. So the rice that comes from the Great Lakes here around Minnesota, mostly um, above us in Canada and a little bit into Wisconsin, like it's just it's completely different than any of that stuff you find in the grocery store. So we purchased a lot of rice from this young uh, couple that's just a couple hours north of us, and they're just harvesting a bunch of that up there. And there's a lot of tribes that to still harvest it um, and a lot of communities out there that do it, and there's just a lot of rice that comes out of Minnesota. 
So going down, uh, this is game or uh, Thado or Tado? Yep, Tado. Um, what strikes me is um, an elk taco. You know, I, I really like venison. Um, mm-hmm. So that sounds kind of good to me. Or duck. Now, I know there's a lot of game in, um, you know, in, in Minnesota and the Great Lakes area. So do you get into hunting and, um, and, and that? I grew up bird hunting, a little bit of deer. We had antelope growing up, lots of rabbits, um, but a lot of birds. Um, so mm-hmm. when I was a kid, I got my first shotgun when I was about seven years old. And uh, we were out there hunting a lot of pheasant and grouse on the, out in the plains in South Dakota. We use a lot of different kind of game on the menu because we have, you know, we typically always have some duck and some bison and some rabbit and some elk. Um, but we have lots of venison. We've had beaver on before. Uh, we use lots of insects. So we have lots of birds like duck, quail, geese, you know, um, uh, things like turkey, of course, and lots of lake fish because there's, you know, over 15,000 lakes in Minnesota alone. Um, so lots of freshwater fish, lots of walleyes, lots of trout, lots of uh, whitefish and northerns. Um, and plus we just, you know, try to feature some recipes that represent other regions. So sometimes we'll do stuff that's very southwesty or Pacific Northwest or East Coast or something. And so we even down in Mexico or up in Alaska. So we just kind of explore North America through that indigenous lens and just try to make food taste like region and space. Um, I saw one of your presentations and you quote, um, who was it, Kissinger? who says, control the food, control the culture. So do you want control the people, control the people? Yeah. Do you want to talk a bit about that? Because bison really tells that story. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, because the destruction of the bison was a very intentional move by the U.S. government in the mid-1800s, starting from kind of the late 1850s up until the late 1870s even. Um, But early on, as the westward expansion is really growing and just post-Civil War when they're really pushing a lot of people westward, um, and there's a lot of clashes, especially with tribes like my own, um, like the Lakota, uh, because my family comes from, part of my family comes from the same camps that Crazy Horse was leading, um, and there was just a lot of battles. You know, some like my great grandfather, who was just a child um, living through all of that, um, sees a lot of these clashes growing up between Lakota and the U.S. government, and uh, you know, eventually sees like the Battle of Little Bighorn when he's 18 years old. Mm. Um, you know, and then just sees the assimilation, sees everybody get pushed onto the reservation, and just see how life changes so quickly in just a short amount of time. But the bison, particularly, you know, it's a dark story because the United States government argued in Congress, and you can find all these writings just by looking at archives, but they talk about um, if it's going to, there were some camps that just wanted to completely annihilate and wipe out all indigenous peoples um, and just commit complete genocide, basically. And some people just were looking at that as being too expensive. So they came across a plan of just wiping out um, this animal that a lot of the tribes in the West were really utilizing for all sorts of things, for shelter, for food, for tools, for medicine, um, and just basically everything you know, so by removing that animal, they were able to weaken a lot of the tribes in the West. Um, and, you know, so we have a lot of stories of trying to understand what happened when the bison starts to disappear um, and the aggressiveness of the people coming in from the East. And, uh, you know, there's just so much um, just just change that's happening so quickly, you know. So there's quotes just like every every buffalo dead is an Indian dead, basically, and things mm. like that. 
people mm-hmm. like Colonel Dodge, um, and you know, and it's a very like again, you just trace the history because it's just there. Um, but you know, so they start paying bounty hunters just to take, or they they start paying hunters just to take out the the animals, and you know, millions of animals are removed within just a couple of decades, um, and just completely annihilated. And again, like the sole purpose was just to weaken the tribes in the West. So it's, uh, but you know, we're lucky that we still have a lot of bison. Um, we buy a lot of bison from the Cheyenne River Sioux Tribe, which is right in the middle of South Dakota, and uh, it's really great because that animal, you know, is so so uh, um, just symbiotic with this land space out here. Like it eats the right plants. It's just good for the environment, you know. So removing a complete animal like that was just an environmental catastrophe, and you know, it had lots of chains that happened that break because of that situation. Um, so we it would be best if we could start to put some of those animals back into these land spaces, especially the grasslands where they thrived, um, to really help rebuild the soil, to help uh, rebuild a lot of the plants that naturally like to grow there. Um, and there's just a lot of benefits of you know, just understanding how environment works and how, how these animals were a part of everything. Yeah, so you talk about you know the understanding of the plants and the environment. You talk about um, the food knowledge that was lost, as well as the food. Right. So just knowledge of local ingredients and um, knowledge of cooking. And um, um, do you want to talk a bit about that? Um, Just the loss of knowledge and, and how you're working to regain that. Yeah. So part of that question, like I said in the beginning of this conversation, was just trying to understand what was lost, you know, and uh, understanding that we're not trying to dig way back into the past, like it's not ancient history, you know, because this was like my great grandfather grew up with all right. of the education of a young Lakota person, you know, and then during the, so my grandparents' generation are the first wave of, of generations that go through goes through the assimilation and the boarding schools, um, and mm-hmm. all of our indigenous education is completely replaced with a westernized version of education, um, giving it teaching us completely different things, you know. So part of the work that we've done is just identifying what is indigenous education, which is basically just thousands thousands of generations of knowledge being handed down, giving us everything, you know, how to uh, identify plants and know which parts to harvest and when to harvest and how to harvest. And is it food? Is it medicine? Is it lodging? Is it crafting? Is it clothing? Like, what can you do with it? But just understanding this deep relationship with the environment around us. Because you can look at indigenous peoples on a global scale and see that almost everybody has the blueprint to live sustainably with just the world around us. So there's a lot of extremely valuable knowledge from indigenous perspectives and a lot of diverse knowledge amongst that too. And it's just a matter of just showcasing what's possible. So as we go through really intense assimilation efforts um, throughout the late 1800s and in deep into the 1900s with boarding and residential schools, um, we lose so much of our identity and our cultures because of that situation. And right now there's a big resurgence of people really trying to piece this all together, just like the work that I do with food. Um, And it's just trying to understand how we can be healthier, how we can retain a lot of our um, ancestors' uh, knowledge around foods, around environment, around basically everything. Um, So it's just really important to understand the damage that happened, um, again, with just this process of colonialism and these processes of assimilation, because it's happened to not only here in North America, but basically pick a continent, you know, and it's, you know, world colonialism on a global scale has a affected indigenous peoples everywhere. So it's just showcasing a path of how we reconnect with our ancestry and how we 
um, start to rebuild a lot of the knowledge of our ancestors. And, you know, the work that we do, we're not trying to cook like it's 1492. We're trying to just showcase uh, how much knowledge we can gain from understanding our ancestors and the education that they carried and applying it to today's world to become something different moving forward to really showcase a new era of what it means to be modern Indigenous. Hi, this is Theral Timpson. I'd like to invite you to sign up for our newsletter at www.fivewiththeral.com to be notified of each new 5 o'clock podcast, as well as new articles coming out each week. Thanks for listening, and enjoy today's show. Talking about colonialism, <laughs> you have this great line, on one of your presentations, you said, by the way, if anybody wants to understand what colonialism is, um, Google it. <laughs> right. <laughs> and then you read a, a dictionary definition, um, which is pretty straightforward. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I see what you're doing here. You know, yeah, this we've got this history. It is a sad history. Um, but in a way, you, you're you working to kind of uh, rewind it a bit or um, – Re- rewrite it and so i'm so i'm curious to get into in a, in a way it's kind of ironic um you have to embrace some modern um some modern ways um i think you've talked about the fact that a, a restaurant is actually not a very good um uh, do you call it business plan or something it's yeah, awful business plans. It's really. an awful business plan, but somehow yeah. you're engaging with the mo- modern mainstream world to actually at the same time preserve your culture. Do you see a kind of um, irony there? Um, Absolutely. And, and how does that tension feel to you? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of irony involved. I mean, because we push for decolonized diets and we push for decolonized lifestyles, and there's no way to do that when you're running a capitalistic-minded business, you know. Yeah. And so, uh, but you know, we're trying to do something different, and you know, we have to play with what we have, and and we have to be a part of the world that we're that we live in. Um, and and so restaurants are very dangerous financially. They're like. Like they literally are one of the worst business models out there because you get such tight margins, if anything, if you're able to even make a profit. You know? And there's just a lot of difficulties involved with running restaurants. And I feel like you know shows like The Bear that's on TV is, showcases uh, the hardships you know, very plainly. You know? And it's just daily lifestyle for a lot of us in the restaurant industry. I've, um, I've wondered about also- that. I mean, I love restaurants, but I kind of knew – you know, oh. well, don't do it because <laughs> there's no <laughs> money. Restaurants are, you know, extremely important at the same time because yeah. a good restaurant yeah. could really change the minds of a lot of people. And we've seen that with very key restaurants in different parts of the world, you know. And we're just trying to do something different. And it's unfortunate that we're one of the only restaurants out there like ours at this moment. But we're seeing more and more of this work going towards it. And again, with our nonprofit work, we're just trying to become a support center to help other people do the same. And we may even be able to open up more and more restaurants in different regions um, because of the the plan that we have in front of us. Uh, Let's get into that plan. Um, Talk to us about your your vision. I I love to do this on this podcast. You know, put on your big vision hat and let's color on the walls and... um, or on the rocks, <laughs> um, um, and talk about what things could like could look like, say fifty years from now. Because I, th- what strikes me about you is you have a really big vision. 
Yeah, I mean, a lot of this work was realizing that um, this wasn't just about the region that I'm in. It wasn't just about um, creating something here in Minneapolis, but seeing this need on a much larger scale and just seeing a lot of changes that still have to happen. Understanding the way I grew up and the foods that I had available to me on Pine Ridge Reservation, with which was primarily commodity foods coming from the U.S. government, and just not having a lot of healthy foods, and it's still very normal out there to have that exact same food base. Um, so we just really wanted to make a lot of changes, so that's why I came up with this thought process of what we're doing with our nonprofits. The nonprofit's called Natives. It's an acronym, um, N-A-T-I-F-S, and it stands for North American Traditional Indigenous Food Systems. So we basically were looking at North America from Mexico through Alaska, kind of removing the colonial borders and just looking at indigenous North America and just looking at the immense diversity that's out there and just trying to figure out how can we help get more of these indigenous foods out to tribal communities because a lot of these tribal communities who are surviving primarily off of um, commodity food programs and have extreme rates of um, type 2 diabetes and obesity and heart disease and all these foodborne illnesses. On top of that, just having very dismal economics and just really high unemployment rates and high, high, really high high school dropout rates and things like that, that we need a lot of changes. You know, there's things that just haven't been happening that we have to work towards. So the vision of the nonprofit is we just finished up building our model here in Minneapolis, Minnesota, where we have an entity called Indigenous Food Lab, which is a place that we're, allows us to be able to research and development to further our own knowledge and education around Indigenous foods and to help preserve that, um, to do a lot of uh, work um, helping to create more access to indigenous foods and create more access to indigenous education. So we've created a market space where a local community can have access to just purchasing cool retail indigenous food products and even products that we make ourselves like oh, that's nice. like nice. tortillas and masa from, from native corns and things that we're processing. Um, and we have lots of like wild rice from a few different groups and things like that out there and just a bunch of cool food products from all over the place, which we'll eventually be able to move online and sell to a larger audience. And we also created a digital classroom where we could just be hosting a lot of community classes on Indigenous-focused education, which could be anything. It could be culinary and food preservation. It could be um, language. It could be crafting. It could be stories. It could be um, medicinals or wild foods or agriculture, seed saving. Basically, anything that falls under Indigenous knowledge and education is just creating a space to teach that. But everything that we do will get recorded, edited, and put on our website. And we'll just be creating a ton of videos for people to have access to around Indigenous um, foodways and Indigenous knowledge. And then our goal is to work around us um, locally and within the urban community around Minneapolis, but also our region around Minnesota and even parts of Wisconsin and uh, in Iowa and the Dakotas, but become a regional center point to help develop more indigenous food operations, food producers, restaurateurs, food truck operators, caterers, whatever it might be, um, getting tribal communities to create food operations in their own community so, so there's some kind of access to healthy foods out there. And then um, we've already taken steps of replicating ourselves, which was always kind of the goal, was to make something that we could replicate. So we've already planted seeds to create more indigenous food labs in regions like Anchorage, Alaska, Bozeman, Montana, Rapid City, South Dakota. We're looking in places like Oahu in California. Each one, each one of those food labs will do the same situation where it just becomes its own entity, um, but it becomes a regional center point to help develop more of these food operations everywhere to help preserve a lot of the knowledge bases in those in those those places and to share a lot of education and development. Um, so we're moving pretty fast and eventually we'll cross colonial borders and we can be 
Canada, Mexico, South America, Africa, India, Southeast Asia, Australia, New Zealand, Hawaii, uh, wherever. You know, we just want to move around and uh, and just create a system that will steward Indigenous knowledge for future generations and create something that will be beyond my lifetime. Cross colonial borders. I got that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So <laughs> when you say a food lab, is that something like the Awamni restaurant then? Um, or is that um, the restaurant plus um, the facility, the marketplace that um, creates ingredients? Well, right now, Awamni is the restaurant, and it runs as a for-profit business, and we have about 120 employees there. It's a rather large restaurant. And then the food lab is – the indigenous food lab is just kind of a public-facing entity of the nonprofit side. So there's kind of two camps there. Oh, okay. For-profit. So indigenous food lab is under the nonprofit, and that's where the market space is. That's where the classroom is. That's where a large production kitchen. So we do actually make a lot of products that we sell to the restaurant. And I set that up so the restaurant was always purchasing from the nonprofit and pushing money towards the nonprofit to make it a little bit more sustainable. And we're working really hard to try to create a more sustainable model of a nonprofit so we're not just out you know, fighting for all the grant dollars and, and funding that's out there, but really creating ways for it to create cash flow on its own to be able to keep the work going. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's an interesting model, but we're excited to be able to um, – get this all honed here in Minnesota so we can start uh, spreading it around. And each one of these models will also carry with it some kind of food service entity because where we are with the food lab in South Minneapolis, it's inside this kind of multicultural um, food hall. And, um, there, there's a little lunch counter that we can we sell some really simple pieces out of there, um, but we can open up. You know, we can scale. So, if we're in Anchorage, Alaska, you know, we could probably create an entire restaurant up there. Um, you know, place it right downtown Anchorage or something where all the tourism is, and uh, create something that creates a lot of jobs, creates a lot of uh, flow of indigenous food products to help move things around, and just create something that helps open up people's minds more about the land that they're standing on in all these different regions. So thinking of Anchorage or Bozeman um, and, and uh, say, those other um, Native American cultures, uh, is there a lot of support um, in, the, um, in the Native American community for this? Are you, are you getting a lot of resonance? Yeah, I would say definitely yes, um, because a lot of people um, who are really working towards food sovereignty anyways and all these different nations all over the place um, are working really hard, and we've moved pretty far. Uh, we've moved the dial pretty far with what we're able to do, um, and we've been lucky to be able to get where we've gone in such a short time period, you know, because I started the company in 2014, so it hasn't even been a decade quite yet, but we've gotten a lot of accomplishments, you know. That is a, few- a lot within yeah. a short time. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's been a big year too because Wamney won Best New Restaurant by the James Beard Restaurant last year, which is a huge Congratulations. award. Congratulations. And, you know, those awards usually go to really high-end restaurants that were not that, you know. Um, and, you know, we're just trying to, again, just do something different, but do things that are necessary. And um, this work's never been about me or my ego or trying to create a personality around an, around a like a, uh, a chef kind of persona, but it really is just we're trying to do something different. You know, we just really want to help. We want to make some changes, and we see some clear paths on how to do that. And speaking of other natives um, and the James Beard, there was an award this last week that went to um, another Native American chef. 
Yeah, Sherry Pocknett. Um, we were there for the awards in Chicago this last month. It was in uh, early June. Oh, okay, um, a month ago. Chef, month ago. Restaurant Chef Awards. Yeah, it's been about a monthish now. Um, but yeah, we were very glad for to see Sherry win the uh, the Best Chef of the Northeast category because um, she's uh, she's been doing a lot of really hard work. She's got um, one restaurant open up and uh, she's trying to get another one going. And she's also been battling a lot of health right now, so she's going through some cancer. Mm. Um, so uh, right in the middle of winning that award, so we felt very happy for her to have that honor um, and to see more Indigenous peoples just be able to take some of those spaces. Oh, wow. Wow. So how can we all be a part of this? I think a lot of it is just being uh, aware of the history of the land that you're standing on, the hardships that Indigenous peoples had to go through and still go through, um, why Indigenous peoples stand up for a lot of environmental protection and try to protect a lot of the natural spaces instead of just mining it, um, which is just you know part of the whole colonial machine of just extracting for profit, basically, and just leaving devastation everywhere after you're done with it. Um, and I think people you know should be very curious about the foods that really um, identify the region that they're living in and you can't really you know you can't really understand american foods without um, bringing indigenous foods into the conversation because it's just it's the foundation of it all you know it's the root system of everything um, and that's where we have corns and beans and squash and chilies and sunflowers and all these amazing game game and berries and things and all the wild foods and plants around us and just you know seeing the world differently like if you're looking out your window not just seeing um uh, plants and you know I always tease that to kids can name more of Kim Kardashian's ex-boyfriends than they can tree species you know and we should really be focused on better education and better use of land and better environmental protections and just you know bringing that whole indigenous perspective into the conversation yeah so I have a bit of property where I live you know just over an acre um, I have a cedar tree um, so I could use cedar berries I've seen you use cedar berry in fact I've seen you even use the leaves yeah. Um, on the rabbit. Depends on the cedar. You probably have the red cedar down there, is my guess, in southern Utah. Uh, oh, okay. I didn't know there were different kinds. <laughs> yeah, there's a few different kinds. Because um, like red cedar is a little bit closer to juniper, so you can use the berries just like juniper berries. Oh, yeah. No, it's juniper. Yeah, I call it cedar, but yeah, it's juniper. Yeah, well, it's the, there's a couple different varietals, so you probably have the red cedar down there. Okay. Um, and then um, we have a lot of white cedar up here, and um, you get to the northwest, you have a lot of incense cedar and stuff like that. We use the white cedar, and they have white cedar too, but you know we use a lot of that for just seasoning. Like uh, one of our main drinks is just white cedar and maple at the restaurant. Uh, it's just okay. a tea. It's really oh, super nice. tasty. Lots oh, of nice. Items. Yeah, and it's just there's a lot of usage for everything around us. But you know, you where you are, there's also amazing food systems. You know, because you have mountains and deserts and all the things, and there's all sorts of just amazing foods and all those different um, altitudes and areas. And there's food everywhere if people just looked at the world differently. Yeah, and there's probably books that um, get yeah. into this. Oh yeah, plenty. Well. And there's you, know, you can download an app on your phone and take a picture of a plant, and it'll tell you what it is. So there's a lot of resources out there to learn about plants around you. Cool. Well, this has been so much fun. So Awamni, um, it's open year round. Then um, you're talking yep. about the four seasons, and and you need reservations all the time. Is it really hard to get into? Yeah, we've been sold out since we opened up back in July of 21, and it's just the way it's been. Um, <laughs> well, that's no so fun. Anytime we put it, yeah. <laughs> So people ask me, how do you get a reservation? And I just say, I don't know. I just grew up on one. <laughs> That's great. Well, we'll leave it there. Um, Chef Sean Sherman, owner of a Wamney restaurant serving Native American decolonized cuisine. This has been inspiring. Thank you. Thank you.
you. Appreciate it.